Welcome to episode 79 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Doug Hausman, Principal Consultant at 1898 & Company, a Burns & McDonald division. Burns & McDonald is a 100% employee-owned family of companies with an unmatched team of 7,600 engineers, construction professionals, architects, technologists, and scientists. They tackle every technical challenge, every complex detail with the intent and attention of an owner. Prior to working at 1898, Doug worked for Capgemini in the energy practice for more than 15 years. He rose to the level of CTO before joining Enernex as the Vice President of Technical Innovation, where he worked all over the world on issues related to smart grid, smart metering, smart homes, and related technologies. I'm thankful for knowing and getting to work with him. I'm also thankful for all the people working to get us through these difficult times. COVID infections continue to increase many places in the world, so please be careful out there. And please remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind and take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Doug and I spent a lot of time at conferences talking about smart grids, smart meters, and what the future of utilities could look like. From Distributech to Grid Week to Connectivity Week, I can't remember a grid modernization conference where I didn't hear him speak. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm here with Doug Hausman. He's principal consultant at 1898 & Company, a Burns & McDonald division. Doug, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you, Lee. It's good to be here finally. (laughs) <laughs> I should have had you on much earlier. I apologize. Oh, it's my fault, not yours. Okay, okay. We have known each other quite a while since the earlier of the Smart Grid days. Yeah, almost two decades at this point. My first memory of you was when you and Cap Gemini came to pitch Utility of the Future to Semper Energy. And I thought we knew what we were doing, but obviously we didn't because we didn't get the job. Well, you were my favorite person that presented, and I was disappointed. I wish I could have done that job because I think I could have made a difference. And I think a different path to utility of the future might have made a difference in how California is proceeding with what they're doing. And it may have the city of San Diego not thinking about creating a municipal utility at this point and carving out the middle of SDG&E. I ran our smart grid efforts, so I can't completely agree, but I do think it would have been easier with some of the vision you would have brought forward. I think you did everything you were allowed to do, Lee, and I think you did it well. I think the problem does not rest with you or what the smart grid effort tried to be at San Diego. I think it comes down to 
how management and other people looked at the overall idea of smart grid and how they were led to believe it should be thought about. There was a period of four or five years where we really aligned management. And during that time, I think we made great progress, but management changes. It does. Okay, let's talk climate change. What was the motivating moment when you felt it was important and you had to engage? It actually came when I was in high school in the 70s, and it wasn't called climate change at that point. It was called global cooling, and it became clear that we were seeing something very different in that time period than we had seen maybe since the 1630s, 1640s, when you go back and look at temperature. And I realized that the trend was interesting and different and that we probably needed to start thinking about how did we treat our planet better. And a lot of my career has been looking at how do we treat the planet better. I tend not to use climate change or climate crisis when I'm talking to people simply because that automatically starts a debate about whether it's real or not. I tend to talk about we only have one planet. We need to do a better job at treating it well so that it's here for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and so on. In many cases, we get too strident about using climate change or climate crisis, and it's a divider rather than a uniter. I think if we spent more time talking about treating the planet better, we get a lot further. Is there a specific moment that you remember, kind of an aha moment? I think my real aha moment was going outside and realizing that the snow on the side of our house was up to the windowsill on the second story. And I realized it was probably one of the worst winters I had ever been involved in. Now, I was young. I was still a teenager in the early 70s, but it really caused me to think about things carefully. Are there personal reasons you're driven to combat climate change? I think I'm driven to treat the environment better, partially because I have some lung damage that dates back to the 70s, and breathing is sometimes difficult to me. So anything I can do to make the air quality better, to make it easier to breathe, is a good thing. Can you talk about what you and 1898 do to combat climate change? We try to work with the industry, the utilities, the governments, and other people to try and help them understand how to make good decisions and what those good decisions can do, both in terms of the economics and in the social point of view, but also from an environmental point of view with people. And we try to do things in a practical, you can actually achieve this fashion because what you're dealing with with 1898 is a set of engineers who actually have to build things. So they think about everything they do in a stepwise fashion of the hip bone is connected to the leg bone, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of how we think about the grid and moving forward. We like to say that in order to have a good grid for electricity, it needs to be strong, smart, and sustainable. More and more, as we do detailed studies, we find that we're going to move a lot more electricity across the distribution grid unless we put some form of storage at every point where we're going to charge cars and every point that we're going to make electricity 
And I don't think a lot of people realize that. We've got a study underway right now for a university town in the Midwest where their peak demand is going to go from 25 megawatts to 75 megawatts in order to charge the cars during the day where they're at. And even if they didn't charge the cars where they're at, charge them at home, peak demand will go to 45 megawatts at night in the winter as we move from natural gas heating to electric heating. So in one way or another, the overall demand is going to change and the infrastructure that supports that demand really needs to change too. And the sooner we get to that, the better off we're gonna be. The other thing is that far too much of the distribution grid, the lower voltage part of the electric grid is under instrumented. Yes, we put AMI meters out there in many places, but we read them once a day, three times a day, four times a day. Mostly they don't give us real-time information that we can take action on. And as we get advanced distribution management systems and other systems to be able to control the grid, we've got to really have the sensors in the field and the communications to back that up in order to make good decisions. So you said 1898 builds things. How has the pandemic impacted what you're doing and what the company is doing? Hasn't impacted the company at all because most of our projects were already underway. We have a very strong culture of safety. And so it was initially everybody work from home, slow things down. But we've got new sensors that tell us when people get within six feet of each other. We've gone to a mask on everywhere, regardless of what you're doing culture. And we continue to deliver projects for our customers on time. Now, the people that don't need to be on site, we allow to work from home as much as possible to minimize the chance of spreading COVID-19 and having any of our folks catch COVID-19. I want to dig into what you said about electrification a little bit. When I was at SDG&E, we implemented a number of different rate plans that encourage customers to charge at the times the grid needed them to charge. And when we made it dramatic enough, it worked. People did go on those plans and they did charge at times when the grid had the available energy. And that works, Lee, and it works very well. The problem is that in many cases, that car isn't where the energy is being produced. And so while the grid has the energy and we can reduce the curtailment and the transmission system is plenty good enough to move it at the bulk energy level, at the higher voltage levels, many of the parking garages and things of that sort where those vehicles will be parked during the daytime while people are working are half a megawatt. And you spread half a megawatt across cars, you can put maybe 60 car chargers in a garage that holds 700, 800, 1,000 cars. Now, it's great to charge those 60 cars. You might even be able to double the amount of power without much of an infrastructure change to that garage. But you're not going to get to the point where you got 10 times or 20 times the amount of power into that garage without significant infrastructure upgrade. I think you're right. There will be places where there's not enough energy that you can get. And even with smart charging, and even though commutes tend to be within 30 or 40 miles round trip, I think there'll be pockets of both. Pockets where you can do it without infrastructure upgrades and pockets where you can. In the more dense areas of employment, if people return to the office after COVID-19, 
there will be some pretty significant upgrades to the infrastructure because in many places, that infrastructure is already running on the ragged edge. Not so much out on the West Coast where the downtown cities are newer, but especially in the East Coast and the Midwest, in those downtown urban areas, many of those grids were built in the 20s and the 30s, and they're at 4, 5, 8, 12 kV with network protectors. And there just isn't the energy density in the network to be able to support that charging. I'm going to have to bow to your knowledge about the East Coast. Can you talk about your journey? How did you get to where you are? (laughs) I made him laugh. A long and strange way. I grew up on a farm. My dad worked as a lineman. I started going out with him when I was way too young. If Hosha existed back in the day, he probably would have gotten tickets. Ended up getting used initially as a human rock picker to pick the rock out of the bottom of the hole because I was small enough to be lowered into the hole head first, (laughs) grab the rock and pull it back out. I joined the Navy, made the mistake of letting an admiral know that I understood infrastructure and building and electricity. Ended up spending most of my Navy career working in engineering roles. And in fact, at one point for a very short period of time, ran public works for the Navy in San Diego County. And I do mean a very short period of time. It was a matter of weeks until they got somebody in who knew what they were doing to really run it in the right fashion. (laughs) But when I came out of the Navy, I needed to find a job. I ended up bouncing through three different jobs each for a short period of time, finding that I didn't enjoy any of them and ended up back in the infrastructure area with Capgemini, helping to lead their global utility practice and working during that time in almost 100 countries over a 20-year period, helping to figure things out and continuing to work moonlight as a line person in relief fashion during storms and other things of that sort in order to make ends meet from the time I left college until probably my early 40s. So I actually have some experience climbing poles and setting transformers and digging trenches and things of that sort that are practical in nature. And it helps me understand how things need to go together and how you need to communicate with the field people and how you need to be practical about so many things that you're trying to get done in order to be successful. That was super important experience. It was. I really think every engineer ought to have to spend six months in the field working with line people in order to understand exactly what goes out in the field. I think A, they'd have more respect for the linemen and B, they'd understand how much work it is to get some of the things together. And risky. Yes. I ended up spending a little time in the Pentagon doing some research on an all-electric ship, which through many, many iterations from when the time I touched it became the USS Zumwalt's DD-1000. Worked on my first lithium-ion batteries back in that time period in the early 80s. Did some work with Florida Power and Light on on on-call and some of the early metering. Then got involved in Enel with their metering efforts. Learned about SCADA when I took my degree in combat systems design. Because the difference between SCADA and combat systems is combat systems keeps working when you shoot holes through it. And SCADA mostly continues to work up to a point, but once you shoot enough holes in it, 
it stops working. Got to understand that portion of things. Understood more about substations from having worked on building a few of them. Hydroelectricity from doing some work in Africa that resulted in a couple of fairly good-sized hydro facilities. Worked on some transmission work in the Philippines and in Europe. Helped put together what became the ETSO in Europe and Tenet and helped create a DDF trading and a few other things like that along the way so that I got a feel for the market side and the regulatory side as well as the physical side. That's kind of how I got to where I am. <laughs> That's a lot of relevant and great experience. I was lucky. I had a boss who kept putting me in places where I got to learn new things. Well, speaking of being lucky, did you have any setbacks, things that were unlucky? Losing Eric Gunther was probably one of the biggest setbacks for me. My mentor at Enternex, I learned a bunch of things from him, but losing him kind of left me wondering what I was going to do next. I was incredibly lucky in that I had been doing some subcontracting work with Burns and McDonald at that point, and the folks that I'd met at Burns and McDonald offered me a chance to mentor some of the young engineers at Burns and McDonald in some of these things. And I've spent the last three and a half years doing that sort of mentoring. I truly appreciate being able to work with young engineers and completely confuse and befuddle them by saying things that aren't in their engineering books. Of all the things you've done, what are the successes you're most proud of? helping put in all of the meters and getting the interfaces and things sorted at SDG&E is something I'm somewhat proud of. Working with the team at SDG&E was fantastic. All the distribution work that I did with Ron Salt and others over the years at Hydro One in Ontario was fun and taught me more about resilient infrastructure than I think you could learn anywhere else because of the remote isolated communities and some of the rural circuits that literally run for hundreds of kilometers. It got me thinking about how do you do this better without spending a massive amount of money. I think the work that I did in the Navy that led to a number of classes of ships that are at sea today, now I can't take much credit, but I got to work on, lend a hand in, and see that work move forward. None of those ships hit the water until more than 20 years after I worked on them, so there were thousands or tens of thousands of hands after my time that did things. And especially, though, my work in Africa during the time I was in the Navy and afterwards and helping with getting electricity and clean water to a number of locations and helping to train a number of engineers on how to practically build and maintain a grid are some of the things I'm proud of. I'm still waiting for DHS to release a report. I wrote a little over two years ago, but it's being used to do rehabilitation. But I'll leave it at just the fact that it's being used to do rehabilitation for now until it's actually public. When you say rehabilitation... Both decarbonization and a much stronger grid in a portion of the country. Looking ahead 20, 30, 40 years, what do you think climate change is going to do to the world, the country, and do you think we're going to overcome it, or do you think it's going to overcome us? I think the important thing to realize is we all need to get better at 
being nice to our planet. I don't know that what's going on is going to stop in 2050 or 2100 or 2300 or 2525. I know that we're on a trajectory right now and some countries are making progress at decarbonization, reducing greenhouse gas and reducing energy while much of the world is continuing to add carbon, add sources of carbon, because that portion of the world doesn't have the access to energy that we have been fortunate to have here or Western Europe or Australia have had. And there's far more population in that part of the world than there is in the fully developed countries. So right now, the International Energy Agency projects that we will finally come to peak coal use for electricity in 2050, that we will probably come to peak use of natural gas for electricity and space heating in 2021 that we will probably hit peak use of oil globally in 2040 or 2045. So we're way late. The Europeans back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, said that they were going to reduce their carbon output by 20% by 2020. They've continued to increase it over those two decades. The only country that's made serious progress on carbon production is the U.S. from the countries that had made any sort of commitment back in that time period, and the U.S. was not formal. Countries like Costa Rica and other places like that have done very well with renewables, but to a large extent, they've had a lot of hydro to make that better. We're on a path to do something about transportation in North America and decarbonize it, but at the rate we build vehicles, it will take us in a neighborhood of 18 or 19 years from the time we stop producing internal combustion engines until we've replaced the fleet that's on the road, simply because that's what we can build in a year. And we've got issues with certain materials where there isn't enough of the material produced in a year to be able to support that level of production. And my biggest problem is nobody's thinking about this problem holistically. Nobody's working their way through the supply chains because it's a great, big, hairy, complex monster that is very similar to what we had to do to mobilize for World War II. And we may need that level of mobilization if we're serious about getting to something by 2040 or 2050. We may have to put half or two-thirds of the cars that we have today up on blocks, just like we did in World War II. I just don't think people realize what it's going to take. If you look at 50% of our energy use coming from wind power, and we go 10 miles offshore on the East Coast and 3 miles offshore on the West Coast and take all the continental United States and those offshore areas, we need a 2.5 megawatt wind turbine on every other square mile. That's on top of the Sears Tower. That's in Central Park in New York City. That's everywhere. We need to take two states and put them underneath solar power and preferably to get the maximum production. We start 
on the east side of the mountains in California, and we run to the western portion of Texas. And Arizona, New Mexico, and parts of Nevada are that. And to do it, we need to remove every rock, tree, cactus, house, and everything else out of that area to get that level of energy. It's not trivially. You're not painting a pretty picture. We've got people going around and saying, oh, because the size of the posts under the solar cells are only six square inches for each post, an acre of solar cells only really takes 100 square feet of land. They're not being realistic. And as people look at that, they go, well, then I don't have to sacrifice because there's plenty of 100 square feet of land elsewhere. And so I can be as dog in a manger as I want to be about not having wind turbines in my area or not having solar in my area. They don't realize it's pretty much got to be everywhere. And we've got to get realistic about what we tell people about what it's going to take to do this. And another big portion of it is storage. We're not talking about a gigawatt here and a gigawatt there with three or four gigawatt hours. We're talking about terawatts of storage with hundreds of terawatts of energy in that storage. So we're talking probably massive pump storage facilities or massive flow batteries in order to be able to do that. And people just are not being realistic about those sorts of things. Well, the sun's always shining somewhere, so we just spread out the solar. Well, no, there are only four time zones in the United States if we don't count Alaska and Hawaii. And I defy you to put enough solar power in Hawaii to power the whole of the United States. You are painting a very scary picture. You're making me very nervous. This is nervous laughter you're hearing. I'm I'm painting a realistic picture, Lee. I know you are. I'm tired of a lot of the people that are out there who are renewable advocates who are painting a picture that is through rose-colored glasses and is really dangerous for what we've got to get done. I agree with you. We don't have much time. The longer we delay, the more carbon we create. We've got to get on this, and we're just not doing it. We have the ability in the United States right now to build about a 1,000 wind turbines a year. To get to a million, that would mean that if we built them all in the U.S., it would take 100 years. That's not acceptable. We've got to ramp up production. Which means putting a lot of people to work. It does. We've also got to realize that we're down to three gigawatts of solar capacity for manufacturing in the United States. But we're putting many times that amount up. Those are all jobs and money that's offshored and not putting our people to work. And it puts us in a strategic position of not being able to say no to some nations when they want something, because if we say no and they cut off our supply, we can't put enough in. We've got to bring manufacturing of solar back on shore. But it's not that easy to do because we've got better environmental laws. We've got other things. One of the ways the federal government could easily encourage it is to say you can use federal land for solar provided everything is made in the USA, which is what the Chinese have done. They've protected their market to the point where you can't bring outside equipment in except for a pilot. And then they figure out how that equipment works 
and go build a better version cheaper. So there's an incredible opportunity to create jobs and solve this problem in the U.S., but this is a global problem. So not only do we have to solve it, but other countries have to solve it as well. Right. Do you think the pandemic has hurt or helped with regard to the future we're going to have with regards to climate change? I think it's actually hurt. We're going to have a lot of families that are going to come out of the pandemic with lower wages, less in the way of jobs, less in the way of savings, and less tolerance for changes in costs and other things of that sort. We've seen food prices increase nationally by 10% since the pandemic started. This fall and winter, when we're not actually actively growing food in much of the United States, I suspect we'll see that prices are going to go up by another 10%. And so there's going to be a lot less tolerance for increase the electricity price by 10 or 15% or pay more taxes on gasoline or have to be or be forced to go out and buy a new car. And I suspect the cars that are on the road are going to see an extra two or three years on the road simply because that's what people are going to be able to afford to do coming out of the pandemic. I also think that a lot of people are going to put more money away coming out of the pandemic so that they've got cushion for the next time. And so we're going to get a lot more conservative about the way we spend money as a nation. And so it's going to be a lot harder to get things off the road. And you could argue, well, we could do cash for clunkers. Yeah, but if people are not inclined at all to buy a new car, cash for clunkers might be good for people who are making $200,000, $300,000 a year. But it isn't going to help Joe Average Public, who isn't about to go buy himself a new car right now. We could put trillions of dollars into infrastructure and create jobs. But if those jobs don't make quality of life for most people noticeably better, and let's face it, they've got reliable electricity now. And after having watched California this summer go through rolling blackouts and worries and so on and so forth, the feeling in the Midwest is they want less to do with solar and PV and wind power, and so on and so forth, and more natural gas because they want to know the power is going to stay on. From a monetary perspective, I agree. I think that's going to be a big challenge. What do you think about people seeing, because of the pandemic, that bad things really can happen and that climate change is even bigger than the pandemic and that we really have to get going on this? I hate to tell you this, but a lot of people don't see and you'll get in an argument over it, anything that they would be willing to call climate change. you got to realize that to deal with those people, you've got to get them to understand that it's about treating our living planet better so that you don't get into an argument over climate change. I can go into any coffee shop, old style, community coffee shop, not a modern, cool Starbucks, but the local diner in the small town and sit down with a group of people. And as soon as I say the words climate change, I've got an argument. You may not have an argument in California over it, but you do in most of the United States. 
And so we've got to be better at picking our words to talk about this with in order to bring more people along with us, Lee, and get things to move forward in a reasonable fashion. And part of that is talking about all things jobs, because that's probably one of the most critical things that we can do to help people get employed. Another thing that we can do to get people engaged and involved is to do something that the electric industry probably isn't a whole lot interested in, but would make a heck of a lot more sense than many of the other things we're doing, and Australia did it. They pejoratively called the program Cash for Caulkers, but I don't know how many houses I've been in in different areas that have heat, that have air conditioning, but have no insulation, that have single-pane windows. And if we really wanted to put people to work and not heavily educated college graduates with degrees and certificates and all sorts of things like that, but Joe Public, then some form of fairly large size insulation, window replacement, and energy efficiency program would be one of the best things that we could do and would have some of the longest-term benefits that we could come up with. Because if I can reduce the amount of energy that a house uses by 15, 20, 25 percent, that's electricity I don't have to make, I don't have to move, that's things I don't have to manufacture. And that 20 percent reduction is good for 20, 40, 50, maybe even 100 years. If I were going to pick a program right now to put money behind to put people to work, it would not be building more solars. It would not be building more wind. It would be a serious program of let's make buildings far more energy efficient. And I'd start by taking the LEED program apart, taking everything that isn't energy efficiency out of the LEED and make it a lot tougher to get to platinum. What's the one thing that regular Sarah public can do to help the environment, help the earth from your perspective? Think before you turn a switch on. Turn things off when you're not using them. Pay attention to energy efficiency labels and things of that sort. If I'm going to paraphrase you, be aware of energy usage. Be aware of how much you waste. Bingo. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I think the important thing to realize is we can't run around dividing people. We've got to run around and unite people. We can't make grand plans that people can't implement. We've got to, as a society and a community, make plans that people can execute and are fair to everyone. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up with a rap. In the 70s when he was having his high school schooling, back then they called it global cooling. With utilities, he talks about balance. That's the tone. You've got to connect the hip to the leg bone. Smart meters. When it was implemented, it doesn't have enough sensors to call it instrumented. The grid needs investment, so sound the alarm. You grew up with a pick on a farm. 
being in the field, it was a great fate. He's been doing lithium batteries since the early 80s. Eric Gunther's passing, it was such a loss. He was a great friend. He was a great boss. Coal and oil, we have to find a way to ban it. We've got to get more serious if we're going to save the planet. Climate change mitigation, it's about globalization. We need to do like a World War II thing and do mobilization. If you want to do something that for the planet is great, the first thing to consider is to insulate. But if you want to do something with great haste, think about energy and do not waste. Wow. That's all I got. That's quite a bunch. That's what I do. You do good. Okay, it's not that I don't understand the uphill climb we are facing with regards to climate change, or as Doug puts it, treating our earth and environment better, but he certainly didn't pull any punches talking about the changes we need to make to get where we need to be. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. It's easy to think that the biggest difference we can make is to put up more solar or to drive an electric vehicle. And by the way, those are good things to do but they don't work for everyone and they can be expensive. Doug's advice to insulate your home is an easy climate change mitigation step that most people can take. It doesn't cost a lot, it saves money, and it helps people get back to work. And his other pieces of advice, to turn things off and not to waste, is something that everybody can do to help mitigate climate change. (laughs) 